Good morning. Wow, what a joy to be able to come and lift up our voices in worship. I just love that. Thank you, Logan, and, and your team. I'm just so encouraged. My heart is prepared. I love it. Thank you, friend. Thank you. All right, well, um, we are about to enter into a just a, a fire hydrant of information. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and invite you to open up to Deuteronomy 12. We're going to start there, and while you're turning there, I'll share a little story with you. Um, my husband, Sean, has, uh, grew up just loving and playing golf. Any uh, golf people out here? <laughs> it's a big thing in our family. He grew up loving that, and that's one of the reasons why I don't play with him is because he's really good at it. <laughs> um, so I personally love it when he can carve out time in his busy schedule uh, to uh, play around with friends uh, here from church usually, um, and along with that love of golf, Sean also loves to watch a very special golf tournament that happens this time of year. I don't know if you like watching the Masters, but that's one of his favorite, um, you know, it's, it's in a beautiful place. It's in a golf course in Augusta, and it always happens around his birthday, and it's just a wonderful tournament to watch. And this year, uh, the winner this year was a 25-year-old man by the name of Scotty Scheffler. And not only has this young man won the Masters, but he's also ranked as one of the number one golfers in the world, really. But what's really remarkable for him, because that's quite an accomplishment for such a young man, right? But what's really remarkable about Scotty is his humility. There was um, a reporter that asked him a question after he won the Masters Tournament this, this past week. How does he balance his desire to compete without letting it define who he is as a person? And this is how he answered. It was very simple, but very profound, really, for such a young person. That all goes back to my faith, he said. The reason why I play golf is I am trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So for me, he says, my identity isn't a golf score. It doesn't matter if I win or lose or never play again. I'm still going to be the same person. Jesus loves me and nothing changes. All I'm trying to do is glorify God. Isn't that encouraging to hear? Encouraging to hear from such a young person. It gives me a lot of hope, as an older gal up here, about the next generation, because above all else, what that communicates to me is that as an in-Christ one, he believes that whether you eat or you drink or you play golf or whatever it is you do, we do what? All things to the glory of God, and we just sang about that. That's really God's ultimate desire for you, for me, that we would bring glory to him in our life. And actually, it was no different for this generation as they were heading into the promised land. God desired for them to be a set-apart people for himself, and not only that, and not only do what the law instructed them to do, but also God desired for them to love and fear and serve him while keeping those commandments from the heart, right? I hope you enjoyed your lesson as much as I did. Now, in so doing those things... Uh, the generation, the hope would be that they would be a light in this new land, that they would be a approach 
in a very perverse and crooked, amongst a very perverse and crooked generation. So last week, what did we learn? We learned that Moses, who is now at the end of his life, has made it his aim to exhort the next generation through a series of farewell messages to help them prepare as they finally enter into the promised land. They were to remember their history. They were to recall God's faithfulness in giving victory over their enemies, and they were to pay attention to the statutes and the judgments which he was about to teach them to do. And so today, together, we get to look at some of those specific stipulations that Yahweh desired for this new generation to be careful to do for his glory in the land. And this by far, ladies, as you know, is just the longest section of Deuteronomy. It's a lot. It's a lot. But what I tried to do was just divide it into three main points to kind of help us organize our thoughts. You know, we need that. And so I, uh, three points, Yahweh's specific stipulations concerning worship, Yahweh's specific stipulations concerning leadership, and Yahweh's collection of miscellaneous laws. And we're going to start with our first point, Yahweh's specific stipulations concerning worship. And so let's allow scripture to shape how we think, and let's start reading Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 1. These are the statutes. And the judgments which you shall be careful to do in the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to, to possess all the days you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all of the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut the graven images of their gods in pieces and destroy their name from that place. You shall not do thus, but you shall seek Yahweh at the place which Yahweh your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. Well, this section um, really begins the elaboration of the first commandment. What's the first commandment? To have no other God's before Yahweh, that's right. He is the only one. He is the only one that is responsible for redeeming Israel. Therefore, Yahweh is to have supreme position in Israel's life. And with that in mind, Moses is about to explain um, all of the statutes and judgments that Israel needed to be careful to do while in the land. And it begins with right way, with the right way to worship the Lord. And that started, of course, with destruction of those idols, right? They needed to utterly destroy those idols and those shrines that they're going to come across when they come into this new land. Um, and according to commentators, that command to destroy is in the strongest terms. My, my version says utterly destroy. I don't know if your version says that, but it's in the strongest terms. And so really what that meant for Israel is they, had to, they, they were not to leave any remnant of paganism whatsoever, you know, once they conquered the land from their enemies. They would, and they would accomplish that goal by just destroying those places of worship and any other religious object that would be associated with it. We also find out that Israel wasn't even to ask about these foreign gods. When they went into the land, they weren't to inquire about them. They weren't to be curious about them. And, and what would be the reason for this? Because 
their inquiry could easily spiral them into various abominations. And do you remember some of the abominations you read about? For example, burning your sons and daughters in fire as sacrifice? I mean, my goodness. And so they would have been, you know, potentially tempted to do something like that. So they were not to inquire. They were not even to listen to anyone advocating the worship of other gods, even if this message was accompanied by a sign and a wonder. Moses adds in chapter 13 that the greatest safeguard that Israel would have against being led astray would be their exclusive love for the Lord. That was a safeguard. God considers idolatry so serious. He really does. He considered it so serious that in Deuteronomy, we found out that to lead people away from Yahweh towards another god, whether you were a family member or not, was high treason. It was, it was so abominable that it was punishable by death. And we might find that shocking, right? That's shocking for us today, but for this new generation, capital punishment was really meant as a deterrent towards any temptation to be disloyal to Yahweh. It was meant to prevent, actually, the spread of apostasy, right? Sadly, as we, because we have the whole counsel of God, read through the Old Testament, one of the biggest downfalls to many of the kings was what? Not tearing down those high places, right? They didn't tear them down, and it was to their detriment. But today... When we think of ourselves, do we have idols in our heart? We do, don't we? We have high places in our heart. We often struggle with the idol of control. We often struggle with the idol of comfort, money, affirmation, so many things that can easily lead us astray and do us great harm and distract us from worshiping the one true God. So we have to be mindful of that. But going back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, Moses also says that in contrast to the places of pagan worship, there would be a place where the Lord must be worshipped by Israel, a place that he would choose out of all the tribes to place his name. And once this single place of community worship was identified, the new generation was to go there and to present their tithes and their offerings. And we can't definitively say that Moses had Jerusalem in mind, but at least we can recognize that Moses is more pointing towards God's worship system, which is wrapped up in that first commandment to have no other gods before him. Yahweh must be worshiped alone. He is to be the supreme authority in their life. And so he, not they, would choose a place to set up a certain kind of way that he would relate and worship with his people. With that in mind, it helps us to understand that the way to worship uh, the Lord isn't left up to us, right? In fact, for Israel specifically, you read in the text as part of their worship, we learned that they needed to be careful about doing things like eating, uh, eating the blood of animals. And even the tithes or the firstborn and vow offerings needed to be brought to this chosen place of worship once they settled in Canaan. But what about for the believer today? What does that look like for us? Well, when we think of worship, we can actually learn from a conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. I'm sure you're familiar with that narrative in John 4, uh, 7 to 30, but you'll recall that that woman was trying to distract Jesus from her indiscretions, right? 
She was talking about how the Jews worship at Jerusalem, but the Samaritans worship at Mount Gerizim, right? But Jesus gets right to the heart. Because in John 7, verse 23, he says, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. When the true worshipers come, they will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So in other words, worshiping the Lord is not so much confined to a place as much as it is worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So true worship really becomes a matter of a transformed heart that is directed or shaped by God's truth, not just your external actions. In fact, it's out of the mouth the heart speaks, right? And so as we love Yahweh with all and we obey him, so we worship him from the heart. Now, I can't elaborate on anything, and so I can't on um, everything, and I, I won't be able to elaborate upon chapter 13 for sake of time. But as you saw in your lesson, chapter 13 is just replete with more specific stipulation as it relates to the second commandment, which is not to make worship, or serve other gods. When Israel makes God into something he is not, like something from the creation, they in effect are worshiping or serving another god, which is in direct violation of that commandment. So in chapter 13, what you found is that you were uh, exhorted or they were warned to shun idolatry, which hopefully you got to explore and think about more in your lesson. Then what Moses does is he turns from that prohibition to be involved in Canaanite worship to chapter 14, which focuses more on the worship of the one true God expressed through some guidelines. And so go to 14, and we'll read together verses 1 to 2. He says, You are the sons of Yahweh your God. You shall not gash yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so here we have a new section in the discussion of the specific stipulations, and this time it pertains to the third commandment, which is not to take the Lord's name in vain. So what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? It really means to misrepresent his character in one's life for those who bear his name. And Israel definitely uh, bore is, um, Yahweh's name. And so Moses is exhorting the new generation to live in such a way that is consistent with their covenant identity. So not only were they prohibited from distorting God's character, but their focus needed to be on how they treated Yahweh. And part of that treatment involved living lives that are set apart and that are holy for him. So, for example, is it any wonder that Israel was prohibited from engaging in cutting practices um, or shaving their foreheads? Why would that be such a big deal? Because those actions resembled a Canaanite religious practice. You find out about it later in 1 Kings, but that's basically what it was. So consequently, it was not in keeping with the people that are set apart for the Lord. And to engage in such a manner would be to deny the exclusive relationship they had with Yahweh, thereby taking his name in vain. 
In chapter 14, there was also a mention of all of the unclean animals and how Israel was to deal with them. And ladies, even that was a reminder to Israel's own separation from the nations. It's just a reminder. They were to be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. And it's no different today. As believers, aren't we called by God from his word to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, right? We are. We are called to present our bodies. We're commanded in Romans 12 to present our bodies as a loving sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is to be our spiritual worship. And so as such, in light of that truth, we are to be careful not to profane or misrepresent the name of the Lord. So as Israel looks ahead to living in the land of Canaan, Moses transitions once again in chapter 14, verse 22, and he begins to elaborate on the fourth commandment of the Decalogue, which is to observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord God has commanded you. So, for example, in verses 22 to 23 of chapter 14, he begins to, God demands that Israel uh, give a tithe of all their produce, which was to be at the right place, which Yahweh assigned, um, which was Yahweh's assigned place of worship. And there, what they would do is just eat it in front of the Lord so that they would learn to fear, love, and revere, revere him. Um, they were to tithe all of that bountiful harvest year to year in God's honor. And from verses 27 to 29, you also learned that having this deep respect for the Lord included a concern for those that he set aside to minister to the people, which were the Levites, right? These men were valued by Israel because of the special role that God had given them. And so the people were to store up a tithe every three years, so that the Levites could come and eat and be satisfied, along with the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. And what that gives you a picture of is that not only is, Lord, is the Lord, you know, he has authority over all of those things, but it also gives you a picture of how much he cares for all of those things, his care and concern. So it gives you encouragement. And as you kind of travel into chapter 15, it still ties in with this discussion about the Sabbath, as we learn in verse 1 that at the end of every seven years, they were to grant a remission of debts. And that was a provision that was made for those who fell on hard times so they could get back on their feet. Commentators say that the idea really was that, um, that the Israelites would relinquish, relinquish control of their agricultural endeavors on the land, and from this, the poor of the land as well as the beast, could glean and eat. Again, it's just showing God's uh, care and concern for people. And not only that, I mean, Moses actually encouraged the lenders as well, you'll recall, to be generous and to lend to the poor whatever they needed. And even this issue of indentured servants comes up in chapter 15, where that's connect, and they connect it, verses 12 to 17, which connects with the Sabbath command, because it discusses the idea of releasing them in the Sabbath year, right? So hopefully out of love for Yahweh, this new generation would obey this law by remembering their own history of struggle. They're reflecting their own history of struggle in Egypt when their ancestors were under slavery and how God provided redemption 
and gave them rest. And the takeaway for all of us is, it's just understanding that when you look through the rear view of life and you remember God's faithfulness to you, it can often soften your heart, right, towards people in difficulty. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, me too. Just let that sink in for a moment because it's really important. God's faithfulness to you that ought to cause a certain response in your heart. Well, Moses continues to elaborate on Sabbath rest in chapter 16 as he begins to discuss these major festivals now (laughs) that we um, have been reading about. And the first one is what? Passover, right? Passover. It's a special time for the Jew to remember the exodus from Egypt when God provided redemption and rest. And it's still celebrated today. When is it going to be celebrated? Friday. That's right. The Passover feast included the sacrifice of a firstborn male lamb that could not have any flaws or defects. Um, They would eat it that same night. It also included um, eating unleavened bread, which is actually symbolic of sin. Eating it would remind the Israelites that they needed to remove sin from their lives. And all of that is a foreshadowing of who? Christ, right? Fifty days after the Passover, the Israelites were then to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, and this festival was held as a means of thanksgiving for a bountiful harvest. And for the new generation, this meant giving a freewill offering to the Lord and then celebrating with their families and their servants and other people. For Christians today, this, actu- this festival actually signifies the coming of the Holy Spirit. What do we call it? Pentecost, right? Pentecost. It's celebrated 50 days after Resurrection Day this Sunday. So if you look on your calendar, you want to look ahead, you want to mark June 6th, that would be Pentecost, and maybe you can set that day aside as a special day to give thanks to the Lord for your salvation and for all of the other blessings that God bestows upon you. Well, the third feast was the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was more geared towards the Lord's goodness to Israel which came once the harvest had been gathered. And at that time, they would come together and they would acknowledge every grain, every grape um, that they had gathered, that it was a huge blessing from the Lord. And really, all three of those feasts were meant to be times of thanksgiving towards Yahweh. And it was also meant to be a time that they would have an opportunity to give generously to others. And so all three, thanksgiving, giving generously. And so in summary, having established that Yahweh alone is God, who has sole authority over their lives of this new generation, really chapters 12 to 16 um, through verse 17 really are just an elaboration of commandments 1 through 4. I don't know if you picked up on that. And it just explains how Israel was to worship Yahweh in the right way, in the right place, and at the right time. Um, And I think that picture up there You can click on the picture, Katie, if you want. Um, That's just a tabernacle model in southern Israel that Todd took. I thought it'd be kind of fun for you to see it because we're always wanting a visual of what we're reading. But that brings us to point number two, Yahweh's laws about leadership. So when Israel enters the promised land, they would need to apply the fifth commandment now, which is to honor your father and your mother And really the point of that command was so that their reverential relationship with God would manifest reverence in their lives towards authorities that were established by God, like parents, right? 
And having respect for those in authority would actually become a guiding principle for Israel as they headed into the land of promise. So, for example, you may have noticed in chapter 16 that Moses began to focus more on Yahweh's civil government um, for the new nation. And so we'll turn there now, go to chapter 16 now, and we'll read together verses 18 to 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so Israel needed to understand, you know, quite frankly, that Moses wasn't going to be around, right? He wasn't going to be around to take care of the disputes that are going to arise, and so they must appoint judges and officers in every town that the Lord would give them. And these judges and officers were expected. There was an expectation that they were going to render righteous judgment. They were not to pervert justice. They were not to show partiality to anyone. And above all, they were, not to, uh, they were to reject any bribe. And when these judges and officers and even the people followed the standard of justice, they would experience a very prosperous life in the new land. You know, there's always blessings for obedience, right? Justice really was to be the cornerstone for this new nation once they settled in. But sadly, what do we know from Israel's history? Did they live this out? (laughs) No, they did not. It was always an issue for them. That's why we had prophets that would be raised up over time. They would denounce Israel and its leaders often because they failed in this area often to, you know, judge with righteousness and judgment. And even in Jesus' day, he often called out the leaders. Like in John 7, verse 24, when he says, Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. So that carried all the way through their history. And one of the ways for Israel, though, in which these authorities were to judge with right judgment was to be on the lookout for things like idolatry. They needed to look out for idolatry. They needed to look out for any kind of substandard sacrifice that anyone was making to the Lord. And if anyone was accused of doing these things, part of the righteous judgment would be to inquire thoroughly about it, right? So they would inquire about it, try to gather the evidence. They would try to establish those facts, and they would get a couple of witnesses, right, two or three witnesses to help carry out the sentence, not just one. Why? Because it's an important safeguard, actually, because if you just have one person, if it was just left up to the one, what would they be tempted to do? Falsely accuse, right? Or take vengeance. And then three, if if the case was too difficult, they built in another safeguard, which allowed a final court of appeal, if you will, consisting of Levitical priests and an appointed judge to make the final decision. And if all these facts were true, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as we often hear the man or woman who was accused would have to experience a civil penalty. And it was harsh, wasn't it? It was death, right? It was death. But twice we're reminded in chapter 17, verses 7 and 12, that God's goal in enforcing something like this was to purge the evil from their midst. 
So there's always a good goal behind it. In the church today, we don't stone people for disobedience. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. But what we do do is we do practice church discipline. It's an important grace that God gives us for the unrepentant. Do we do it to punish them? What's really the hope? What's the goal? We want to restore them back to Christ. That's always the goal, right? It's the parable of the lost sheep. We leave the 99 to go after the one. We restore. And so we have that for ourselves as a safeguard. That's the goal. In chapter 17, as we move along in the text, 17 to 20, we also read about laws concerning Israel's future authority. One day, Yahweh would allow Israel to be ruled by a king, and this king would be of God's own choosing, and one that would be from their own countrymen. Moses warns Israel that this king ought to be very careful how he ruled. For example, he was not to acquire a multitude of horses for himself or acquire much wives or too much silver and gold. All of those things would be considered a pitfall because it's almost like returning back to Egypt as far as things um, kind of representing worldliness. But as we know, because we have the whole counsel of God, um, these concerns were realized in somebody. Who was it? Solomon, that's right. David's son Solomon, he became king of Israel after David's death, and as wise as he was, 20 years into his reign, sadly, he acquired many horses, he acquired much wealth, and get this, married 700 women. How is that possible? <laughs> but he did. You can read about it in 1 Kings. God had forewarned Israel about this, and he said that if you engage in such a way, it will turn your heart away from God. And you know what? It came true because King Solomon, as wise as he was, began to worship uh, other gods in that culture. And that was evil in the sight of God. And there were consequences that came with that. He was disciplined. They tore the, he, God tore the nation away from Solomon and gave it to his servant Jeroboam. But out of mercy and kindness towards Solomon, God promised he would not remove his steadfast love from him by really allowing him to continue to rule over what tribe? Judah, right? The tribe that the king of kings would eventually come from. Over time, Solomon eventually recognized his sin. And this is interesting because upon reflection in Ecclesiastes 12, uh, 12 to 14, he, he's talking to his son. He's reflecting. And he says, my son, <laughs> you know, the end of the matter, after all has been hear, heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. And honestly, it's almost as if uh, uh, Solomon is reflecting on Deuteronomy 17, 19 to 20, when Moses says, the king shall write for himself a copy of God's law, which shall be with him all the days of his life by reading and carefully observing them that his heart not be lifted up but remain humble, and that he would learn to fear God. Pretty sobering. Well, in addition to the laws for the chosen king of Israel, Moses includes instructions for the chosen tribe of Levi. We read about that in chapter 18. And we learn that these men would be chosen to stand and minister in the name of the Lord on behalf of the people, according to verse 5. And in response, the people would provide for them. They would seek Yahweh through them and provide for them. We also learn that Moses promised 
that one day the Lord would raise up a prophet that Israel would need to listen to. And it says in verse 18 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers, and it is him you shall listen to. This prophet would be different than in the pagan world. He would only speak what God has said and what he is revealing to him. And we know from the Old Testament that the, the most immediate prophet that, uh, is Samuel, right? God raised him up during the time of Judges. But God also raised up a bunch of other prophets, right, in the Old Testament. We think of like Isaiah, Jeremiah, we think of Joel, we think of Habakkuk, just to name a few. But the Jews were looking for a final prophet to fulfill that role, which was Messiah. He would be the expected king of the Davidic line and one that would deliver Israel from their bondage. And as we all know, Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, who would be prophet and king. That would be who they would be looking for or who they have been waiting for. As we transition to our last point now, we're going to look at a collection of miscellaneous laws uh, from chapters 19 to 26 um, in in a very fast, quick way, but we'll do it. (laughs) The purpose of these laws were so that the people would worship the Lord in the right way, at the right time, and under the leadership of the right people. And in chapters 19 to 20, Moses begins by elaborating now on the sixth commandment, which is, you shall not murder. Each of the, the situations brought up deal with how Israel should prize life and avoid murdering. For example, in chapter 19, we have the laws concerning the cities of refuge. In anticipation of accidental death occurring in the life of Israel, Moses instructs the people to select three cities, right, as places of refuge to which persons accused of accidental death could flee for their protection. And today we make similar distinctions in our own laws, actually, uh, between murder that's premeditated and murder that is accidental. So you've got murder in the first degree and basically manslaughter. In Moses' day, though, if death was on purpose, there was a death sentence for the offender. It was kind of like an eye for an eye. But if it was unintentional, Israel was allowed to treat them mercifully by sending them to these cities of refuge. That would be a safeguard for them because, as you can imagine, if you accidentally kill somebody, there might be a family member over here that wants to kill you, right? So he was al- they were allowed to send these people to uh, these cities of refuge for accidentally killing somebody. Another example of prizing life and avoiding mo- murder is in chapter 19. Verses 14 to 21, it has to do with respecting property boundaries, and it seems kind of random. But think about it for a moment. Moving property boundaries, that could potentially be a problem for people, and that might tempt them to murder (laughs) each other. And so a way to avoid such behavior is to prize life by being content with the boundary that God has given you in the land. That was kind of the lesson there. And then in chapter 20... Uh, Moses begins to expound upon the laws concerning warfare. Yes, even in warfare, there are rules that Israel needed to follow so they could prize life and not be accused of murder as they fight their enemies. So, for example, when Israel approached a city, the first thing they had to do was offer peace, terms of peace, right? And if the city agreed, 
than they were not to kill the people, the inhabitants in that city. They were to, they actually became Israel's forced labor, quite honestly. But if they did not agree, God gave them permission to besiege it by killing the men and taking the women and children and animals as booty along with other spoils of war. And with respect to taking the women, in chapter 21, verses 11 to 13, what Moses is elaborating on there is just talking about how they were given a, a, an opportunity to uh, have a period of mourning, you know, with mourning the dead. By sh- it was just a weird text, wasn't it? By shaving their heads and clipping their, their nails and everything. But really, that's just a symbol of mourning. And it was meant to give them time to come to terms with, with what was happening to them. So it's just very interesting. And we also learn in chapter 21 that even if a slain person is found in a field, you know, someone is just dead in a field, and no one knows who killed him, the elders and the judges were to measure the body to see how close it was, which city was it closest to, right? Because they had to, in essence, atone for it in that culture. And so it really just points to the principle that taking someone's life is just serious. It's very serious. And so even if it wasn't known who did it, there is still what you would call a blood guilt that had to be atoned for. There's other laws in keeping with this idea of prizing life. You had the rights of the firstborn, even if the son of an unloved wife, if you were a son of an unloved wife, you know, you were legally protected. Or um, if you had a rebellious son, whoa, you'd drag him out to, that, <laughs> to the corner and you know, stone him. That's, that's pretty radical. And then finally, <laughs> some, some people are thinking, yeah. <laughs> And then finally, if a man committed a sin, which meant a death sentence, and he hung on a tree, they weren't to leave that body on the tree all night. Uh, They needed to take him down, bury him, so they wouldn't defile someone's land. And so all of these are keeping within the theme of life versus death. Let's move on to Deuteronomy 22 now, verse 9 through 23, verse 18. Most commentators believe that Moses is elaborating on the seventh commandment, which is not to commit adultery. And so Moses is alluding to this commandment by using a principle of purity throughout what he's talking about. So, for example, Israel was to stay pure by not planting two kinds of seeds in their vineyard, because if they did, not only the crops they planted, but also the fruit would be defiled. (laughs) Okay, They were not to plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. They were not to wear clothes of linen and wool together um, or make tassels on the four corners of the cloaks they wore. In verses 13 to 30, the purity principle also extended to the women as well. They were protected against false accusations of being immoral after marriage. Um, Or men were obligated through this purity principle to marry women that they violated sexually. The purity principle also applies to their place of worship. So if there was any kind of sexual misconduct um, or some kind of weird worship, uh, that that would not be allowed because it's closely associated to the religious practices of the Canaanites. Even the Ammonites and the Moabites were blacklisted. Why were they blacklisted? Well, they didn't help Israel, did they, with food and water when they were uh, the previous generation when they were in the desert. And so these exclusions were just, they weren't actually limited to just their place of worship. We also understand that even in the camp, there were provisions or exclusions made throughout the whole camp. 
And you know what? Jesus addresses the principle of purity for us today. This isn't something just for Israel. Um, but when Jesus talks about it, he is more focused on the heart. And, and so here's an example from Matthew 15, 10 and verses 18 to 19. He says, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles a person. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And so in other words, it's not the unclean things that make a person impure. At the end of the day, impurity comes from a person's sinful desires, right? Even when it comes to adultery, it always begins in the heart, does it not? So that's good news for us to know. But the next commandment um, that we need to take a look at, you shall not steal, is elaborated upon in chapter 23, verse 19, through chapter 24, verse 7. And these laws prohibited Israel from charging interest of their own countrymen or stealing one's grapes by collecting a whole basket from their neighbor's vineyard as opposed to just eating a few. Uh, the same goes for their neighbors, standing grain. They would just pluck some of the heads with their hand as they were passing through. Um, but they weren't to wield a sickle and take a whole bunch, right? <laughs> and we know, it's interesting, this practice actually carried on in the New Testament. Do you remember when Jesus and his disciples passed through a grain field? You recall? They helped themselves, didn't they? To some of the stalks uh, they ate as they went along. Were they stealing from the landowners, though? No. So why were the Pharisees so upset? Why were they so upset? They were upset because they were focused on the fact that Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And from their point of view, when they, uh, you know, took those grain stalks and they crushed their heads, that was working. They missed the whole point. They missed the whole point of that law, which was to provide an allowance for any person that was passing through. It was a way for a landowner to practice, literally practice hospitality to strangers. It's just built into the culture and even provide um, just practical aid for anybody that's traveling uh, through. And so the law has a twofold aspect. First, it allowed Israel to help each other through generosity, but it also protected them from being taken advantage of, right? Okay. In chapter 24, uh, 1 to 7, Moses brings up the law of divorce and remarriage. I know it's not clear-cut, as maybe some of the other laws that were mentioned as far as not stealing, but it does fit under the principle of having respect for property. And sadly, ladies, women were just property back then. They just were. And so Moses is really just providing a general guideline for the practice of divorce by kind of using this hypothetical scenario of whether a man can remarry a woman if he divorces her or if she's been married to someone else in the meantime, this kind of thing. The passage really isn't clear about what qualifies for divorce, the grounds, but apparently the husband was permitted to issue his wife a certificate of divorce. But as we fast forward into our New Testament world, we find in Matthew 19, 1 to 9, that Jesus gives us better clarity on this law because Pharisees, as they were always doing, they tested Jesus. They asked him if it was unlawful for a person or a man to divorce. 
And why in the world did Moses give um, women a certificate, or why did Moses command, allow them to give their wife a certificate of divorce? And Jesus answered, it was because of the hardness of their hearts. That's right. Moses permitted men to divorce their wives, um, and so many use that law as a way to get out of marriage for whatever reason. But Jesus reminds us that what God is joined together, let no man separate. However, because of those hard hearts, there was a provision of having grounds for divorce if adultery had been committed. As we continue in chapter 24, we also learn a little bit about the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness. That's brought up. Moses actually connects it to Miriam in verse 8 when he spoke about, when she spoke against Moses in Numbers 12. It's like so long ago in our memory, but you'll recall that she and Aaron claimed that they had the same status, remember, as Moses, which was in essence bearing false witness. And she was disciplined for that by becoming leprous. And some of the other laws in that section all the way to chapter 25, verse 4, have to do with really treating the vulnerable well by not oppressing them. The principle is not to bear false witness by perverting justice, really, um, but to treat others fairly, even the alien, the widow, and the orphan. That brings us to chapter 25, verse 5, which starts a new section. And it, can you believe it? We've made it to, to commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet. And here, Moses mentions a few laws in keeping with the biblical principle of contentment. But in chapter 26, verses 1 to 19, he just simply reminds the people to be content with, by being thankful. And this law to bring first fruits of the promised land to the Lord ensured that Israel would not forget all that the Lord had done for them. It's really reflective of what Moses talked about in chapters 8, 11 to 14, when he reminded Israel not to forget the Lord their God by keeping those commandments. Otherwise, when they went into this land and they had eaten and they were satisfied and things were going well in their prosperity, their hearts might become proud, right? And they may default into thinking that the power and strength comes from them. And so this law of first fruits is all about being truly thankful and content for what the Lord had given them in their prosperity. And for the believer today, we are commanded to be content with what we have, remembering that God will never leave you nor forsake you. The same was true for Israel. God's nearness was their good, and they needed to be reminded of that goodness each year when the harvest came and they set aside a tithe to give as a gift to the Lord to honor him. All right, let's close with some application here. Um, honestly, as I studied, I've been studying this since January, okay? Deuteronomy 1 to 26, really, since January. But as I have contemplated all of these laws, it is truly overwhelming. <laughs> Did you feel overwhelmed? <laughs> but I was also reminded of some important truths that really uh, sent my heart into worship that I want to share with you before we close. So it's very encouraging. For one, as believers... We are reminded that although we are not under the law, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, the law is still profitable, and it instructs your heart and my heart about the nature of God and the necessity for us to live in conformity to it. 
In our lesson this week and last week, we have been taught that out of love and reverence for Yahweh, we must make it our fondest ambition to please him in all aspects of our life. That is our spiritual service of worship. And so praise him for his word, which gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Second, as believers, we are reminded that we could never keep these laws before salvation. The fact is, we were all enemies of God. Our minds were hostile, and we could never submit to any of them in the flesh perfectly or anything else. But thanks be to God, the believer has been reconciled to God through Christ's death and received the day we repented of that sin when we were made aware of our sin through the law. And then we place that faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's good news because God has begun a good work in all of us. That's good news. Our hearts have been transformed and we are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit Christ is in us. So sin no longer has mastery over us. We are free to be a slave to righteousness and obey out of love for Christ. That comes through the Spirit's work in your heart who empowers you every single day to walk in the Spirit um, out of love and to obeying out of love for him. Do we, still, do we obey perfectly the sight of heaven, though? We don't, but your desires are different. Like Scotty, your that golfer Scotty, your desire ought to be for the glory of God, right? Whether you eat or drink. For unbelievers in the room, know that God's law acts as a tutor for you. What do I mean by that? Well, it helps you to understand what sin is. How else would you have known that coveting is a sin or adultery is a sin um, or stealing is a sin? It acts as a tutor. But with that in mind, you also need to understand that the wages of your sin will only earn you spiritual death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. So if you acknowledge that you indeed are a sinner because you haven't kept those laws perfectly, right? And turn to Christ, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's good news. And you can be a true worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth that Jesus spoke about to the woman at the well. And that's the good news of the gospel, which is the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who believes, right? And so my prayer is when we come to worship on Sunday and I see you and I say with confidence that he is risen, I am hoping that you're going to return by saying... Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much uh, for your wonderful word. Thank you that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you um, have given us great reminders that we are to worship you alone. Only you, God. You alone. Help us today just to focus as believers unto you. Help us to remember that um, our life is to be about worship. We thank you, of course, for your son who lived the perfect life that we should have lived and who died the death that we should have died, but he didn't stay dead in the grave. He rose again on the third day for those who would believe. Thank you, Lord, that we are no longer dead to our sin, but alive to Christ. 
Thank you, Lord. As we head into our groups now, Father, help us to continue this worship in the right way by encouraging one another to love and good deeds through your word. And we will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.